Good morning, fellowship. So glad that you guys are here this morning. Everybody come on in and grab a seat. We are going to have an incredible opportunity this morning to sing and to pray and to hear from God's word and just connect with our creator. So I am so glad that you are here. Hey, if you came today and this is your first time to ever come to Fellowship Bible Church, we're so glad that you're here and we wanna welcome you and we, we don't want you just to hear from us from your seat. We'd like to meet you. And so if you would come out into the foyer right after the service, come to that central booth. We've got people there that would love to, to get to know you, find out your name, maybe get some contact information so that we can connect you to our family of faith. So welcome to you. Hey, families, if you've got children in the elementary age group, our elementary ministry has produced a Family study guide for Lent. Lent begins on Wednesday, Wednesday's Ash Wednesday. So if you would like to go through that with your family, you can pick them up out in the foyer or anywhere where you check children in here on campus. Hey, as we get started this morning, I want you to hear a very special message from our elder board. Hello, fellowship. Thank you for participating in the elder nomination process. After a deliberate season of prayer and discussion, our elders have three new candidates for the Office of Elder to present to you today. Michael Collier, Brett Rings, and Brian Denman. If you don't already know these gentlemen, we would like for you to meet them. Hello, Fellowship. My name is Michael Collier. My wife Mandy and I have been part of Fellowship Bible Church of Northwest Arkansas for over 20 years, serving mainly as leaders in the community and small group ministries. Mandy and I have been married for 21 years. Our daughter Michaela is 16 years old and we have a son, Matthias, who will be 14 very soon. One thing that has me jazzed up right now is the growing number of people wanting to worship together again. The pandemic was hard for everyone, but I didn't realize how much I had taken for granted what worshiping together corporately meant to my life. It has been rejuvenating to sing, pray, and listen to the preaching of the word with more and more people each weekend. I'm excited about the future here at Fellowship, and I'm honored to be nominated as a candidate to serve as one of your elders. Thank you. Hi, Fellowship. My name is Brett Rings, and my wife, Leanne, and I have been married for 34 years. We originally came to Fellowship 21 years ago because of the small groups. Leanne and I strongly believe in the benefits of small groups, where you live life with one another in community. In addition to leading small groups, we are also involved in children's ministry, greeting, and I help coach a group of men in Springdale. I'm both humbled and honored to be nominated as a candidate for elder here at Fellowship. Thank you. Hey Fellowship, my name is Brian Dittman. My wife Megan and I have been involved at Fellowship Bible Church for the past 13 years. It has been a joy to lead community groups, Financial Peace University, Discover Fellowship, as well as serve in the children's ministry over the years. Megan and I have been married for 15 years and have a seven-year-old son named Sage, a four-year-old daughter named Hattie Pearl, and a two-month-old son named Crew. I love that Fellowship is a gospel-centered church that strives for our name to be nowhere and our fingerprints to be everywhere. I am humbled and honored to be nominated as a candidate to serve as one of your elders. Thank you. Thank you, Brett, Michael, and Brian for your willingness to participate in the elder nomination process and be considered a candidate for the office of elder. It is a tremendous responsibility to be an elder of Fellowship Bible Church of Northwest Arkansas. And your willingness to be considered a candidate speaks highly of your character, integrity, commitment to Christ, and service in our church family. Now, if you are a member of Fellowship, we have one more request of you. If for some biblical reason, you feel you cannot follow a particular candidate's leadership, please email me, mirapier at fellowshipnwa.org, stating your biblical objection, and do so no later than Monday, March 6th. I will call you personally and we can discuss your objection, which must have merit based on biblical elder qualifications. We require that all elders have 100% affirmation from our body. 
If you have no objection, we assume that you are affirming the candidates that the elders have set forth from the pool of nominees that you provided. Please pray for these new candidates as well as our current elders. We are grateful to each of you who participated in the nomination process. And with your affirmation, we will add Michael Collier, Brett Rings, and Brian Denman to our board this fall. And finally, we would like to thank Steve Lampkin, Stephen Weber, Rod Easley, and Dick Nervick for their years of faithful service as elders. They have represented our body well and will now become shepherding elders. If you see them, express your appreciation. Blessings to each of you. Seventy-six. Seventy-seven. That was a long video. Hey, Sam. Eighty-four. Oh. Hey, Nick. How hey. are you, bub? I'm, I'm great. What are, what are you doing? Just sculpting the buys, man. Sculpting the buys. Can I ask why? Well, I got to get ready because Tuesday and Wednesday, we start men's ministry here at Fellowship, and I want to look good. I got to get ready. I got to impress, right? I don't know if that's how that works. I think really all you got to do is just come as you are, Sam. You know what? You're right, Nick. You don't have to show up, men, having everything put together. Just come as you are. Grab a cup of coffee and a donut and study a book with us. 6.30, Tuesday at the Annex behind Red Kite Coffee in Springdale or 6.30 at the Lodge at, here on Fellowship's campus. Come, grab a book. They're available in the foyer today and, and study the Bible with us. Come as you are. You don't have to know everything about the Bible. You don't have to have your life all put together. But Nick, um, <laughs> what am I doing? What are you doing? Honestly, I've got a tea time right after this. I was just out in the West Field preparing for April 14th. Yeah, I thought I saw a lot of divots out there. Have you, have you this is really heavy. Yeah. Have you talked to, to Buildings and Grounds about that? I, I feel like I need to apologize to Buildings and Grounds. I know the ground is dormant right now, but I promise in the spring those divots will get filled yeah. back in. April 14th, man, we have a, a, a golf scramble benefiting Samaritan Church in Rogers and Springdale. Stonebridge Meadows, we'd love to have you come out and join us for that. And not only that, for men, we also have a retreat coming up in May. I know you've been a big part of that. We, we do have our men's retreat in May out in Ponca Bible Camp, and we are really excited in getting to go out to the Buffalo National Forest and River area. Um, it's just always so gorgeous. The beauty and being able to disconnect from this world, reconnect with God, reconnect with men is always so special um, to be able to do with your fellow men, fellow believers. So it's an incredible time out there. Yeah, men, we've got an opportunity for you. Come as you are. And we wanna become better men, right? Hey, join us this week. Hey, let's go old school this morning. Let's stand and greet your neighbor. Tell him you're glad you're here. Let's come together and worship this morning. Sing the battle belongs to him.
Well, Pat, thanks so much. Hey, we're just gonna jump in today, okay? So we're gonna jump right into Daniel 3. If you have your Bibles, go ahead, open up. Third chapter of Daniel. If you got a workbook, you can open that up. If not, I got all of the text right here for you, okay? So we're not gonna move forward until we read through every bit of this. Now, I I put this up here because I actually think uh, the text works as a visual this week. And so what I want us to do is I want us to actually look at the whole chapter and we can see that it clearly breaks down into three different sections. You see, I think Daniel chapter three has a first section. It's it's one through seven. And it talks about the crazy king Nebuchadnezzar. We've known about him. We've talked about him up to this point. But again, he's back at it in this chapter. And what's gonna happen is Nebuchadnezzar is actually going to set up this wild statue. He's gonna make an image of gold that's nine feet wide and 90 feet tall. And then he's gonna send out this decree saying everybody needs to gather so that we can worship this image that I've built. And by the way, if you choose not to worship the image I built, I'm gonna put you to death by burning you in a fiery furnace. And so this order goes out and everyone gathers, the magistrates, the prefects, the satraps, don't worry, we're gonna say those words a lot this morning. They all gather in and they begin to worship. And that's where the first section ends and the second section begins. Because in verses eight through 18, what we see is three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this section of the story begins to concentrate on the confidence that these men have in their God because they're the three who choose not to bow down before the image of gold. And Nebuchadnezzar is outraged. Certain people come forward and they tell the king, hey, the people that you've appointed over the affairs of this province, they don't don't respect you. They don't bow down to you or worship your gods. Nebuchadnezzar is outraged. He brings these three men before him. And he says, look, I'm gonna give you one more chance. When you hear the sound of all the music played, I want you to bow down and worship the image that I've set up. I'm gonna, here's a little spoiler alert for you, okay? The three men don't bow down. They actually respond back to the king and they go, look, we don't have to defend ourselves before you. We answer to a way bigger authority than you. And our God is capable of saving us, but even if he chooses not to in this moment, we, will, we know that he will later on, we're not gonna follow you. And they display a confidence in God independent of so many different variables. At this, again, Nebuchadnezzar is outraged. And we begin the third section that actually demonstrates the capability of the God that those three men are placing their confidence in. Because Nebuchadnezzar has the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. He actually grabs some of his soldiers. He binds Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, takes them to the furnace and throws them in. And what happens? Those three men don't perish. They don't die. No, actually four men somehow end up in this furnace, which we're gonna look into a little bit. And Nebuchadnezzar says the fourth has the appearance of someone like the son of the gods. And after that, the four men come out. Nebuchadnezzar makes a decree saying, no one should speak ill against the God of these three men. You see, it's these three sections, a crazy king, the confidence of men and a capable God that make up all of Daniel chapter three. And I think when we understand all three of these sections, then we really know the whole chapter. And when we understand the whole chapter, I think then we can start to pick out a little nugget of truth and figure out how that should apply to us today. So let's jump in and let's start exploring a little bit. Chapter three starts off and it says that Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold who's, who's was, it, it says, I think it speaks in cubics, but go ahead and think nine feet wide and 90 feet tall. And so what does he do after he sets up this image of gold in the plain of Dura near the, the province of Ab, uh, Babylon? He actually calls, he gathers all these people. It says Nebuchadnezzar gathered the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come into worship and be at the dedication of this image that he's built. And what we're gonna notice, you've probably already seen it here, is that Daniel chapter three is a little lengthy and there's some repetition. At the very beginning in in, in verse one of this chapter, it says that Nebuchadnezzar made an image. At the 
Next verse, in verse 2, it says that an image of gold was made by Nebuchadnezzar. You see, there's 30 verses in this chapter, and nearly a tenth of it is repetition. And so this long list of all the people, the magistrates, the prefects, the satraps, I don't even know what a satrap is, all of those people that show up, that's repeated so often. So is this idea of Nebuchadnezzar creating an image of gold. So is all these, mu- so th- these musical instruments that we'll see later that are played before everyone's supposed to worship. That is repeated over and over again. And I think the author's doing something for us in this repetition The author actually wants us as readers to see something, and it's two parts. The first is this. I think the repetition actually helps us understand just how big of a deal this is, that everybody is invited. The king is bringing everybody in, and everybody is bowing down and worshiping this image. It helps us understand just how big of a deal it was for these three men not to bow down when everyone else was. The second thing that the repetition does is I almost think it's a little bit of satire. It almost comes across sarcastic because what we're gonna do is we're gonna begin to read this chapter and we're gonna go over these repeated lists and it's like we begin to say, okay, yes, Nebuchadnezzar, I get it. You built an image of gold. You invited the counselors and the magistrates. Those satrap guys, they showed up too. I get it. You played a bagpipe and we're just gonna constantly be reminded of all the things that Nebuchadnezzar put in place And it almost helps us see just how gaudy, over the top, and ridiculous this whole ceremony and image worship is. And so after King Nebuchadnezzar has everybody come into town, the herald gathers, and he says that he proclaimed, hey, you have been commanded, O people, that when you hear the sound of all of this music, and he begins to list it out, he says the horn and the pipes and the lyre and the trigon and the harp and the bagpipe and every kind of music, We want you to bow down and worship the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And if you don't, and if you choose not to fall down and worship, it says you'll be immediately cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And so therefore, as soon as everybody hears this, what do they do? Well, they're wise people. They actually hear that their king has set an image, he's made a law that they have to worship it, and he's threatening them by death if they choose not to worship. And so Verse seven tells us that as soon as the people heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, repeated verse, uh, they begin to fall down and worship the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar set up. This ends that first section, right? And we see what's going on. This crazy king has done some crazy things. He's made a wild statue and he hasn't just made an image and we're we're not sure if it's an image of him or an image of a deity, maybe that he uh, followed or worshiped, but he's created this statue. And then he's put out a crazy decree saying everybody has to worship the very thing they just watched me build. And he doesn't just have a crazy decree or a crazy order that goes along with this statue. He also has a crazy punishment saying, if you don't do what I say, then I'm gonna immediately cast you into the fiery furnace. I might also remind you, because remember, we've got our study glasses on and we're students of Daniel. Um, We can think back to Daniel chapter two, right? And how did the second chapter of Daniel end? Well, Nebuchadnezzar actually looks at Daniel and says, surely, Daniel, your God is the God of all gods in the the Lord of all kings. No one should speak ill against your God, Daniel. And literally you go two verses later and what has Nebuchadnezzar done? He's forgot what he said and he's built an idol. And at the end of chapter two, he, Nebuchadnezzar is also the one who promotes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into a position of power because they're willing to follow Yahweh. We're gonna realize that somehow Nebuchadnezzar also forgot that as well. Because in this next section, chapter or, or, or verse eight is where that section two begins. And it says that at the time, some Chaldeans came forward and they maliciously accused the Jews They declared to the king, they go up to King Nebuchadnezzar and they begin to brown nose him a little bit, saying, oh, live forever, king, you're amazing. And you, king, have made a decree. And they begin to repeat the decree word for word, saying that whenever we hear the sound of the harp, the pipe, the lyre, and they list all the musical instruments out, that we should fall down and worship the image that you have set up. And whoever does not fall down will be cast into the furnace. 
You see, in this section, the author's going to begin to focus on the confidence of the three men here. And I might add, it's not a confidence that they have in themselves. It's not a confidence that they have in their own capability, but it's a confidence that they're willing to put in their God. And that confidence that they have in God shows up independent of a lot of variables, because ultimately we know they don't bow down. Remember, I gave you the spoiler at the very beginning. We know that these three are not gonna bow down before the image. What I want us to do is look, do a little study into their faith. And look at, look at what verse eight says. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and they maliciously accused the Jews. What does it do for us to tell us that it was the Chaldeans who accused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I think it gives us some insight because these Chaldeans would have been fellow ruling or political peers with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Scholars pretty much agree that it was probably political envy that was the motivation for these three men or for these Chaldeans going to turn in the three men. They would have looked at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and said, hey, these guys are foreigners. And yet for some reason at every turn, they continue to be promoted by the king and advanced in power and position. And so the Chaldeans wouldn't have liked that and they would have been looking for an opportunity to get ahead. Well, they just found it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego aren't willing to bow down, so they run to the king, the Chaldeans do, and they say, look, these people, they actually, they don't bow down to you. Well, what does it tell us? That it was fellow ruling and political peers of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who turned them in. Well, it tells us something about their confidence in God that they're willing to put a faith in God independent of their peers. You know, oftentimes when we read this story, we think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego versus the crowd. And we go, oh yeah, those three men were willing to do what no one else in the empire was willing to do. And where that's true, I think what's even more impressive to me is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to do what the very people they worked with weren't willing to do. That they weren't influenced by the people that they spent the most time with, they were influenced by the God that they trusted. And their confidence in their God was independent of their peers. The accusation that the Chaldeans make against the Jews continues as they, as they look at the king and they go, hey, look, there's actually certain Jews and they begin to name them. They say there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and you have appointed these Jews over the affairs of the province of Babylon. These men, O king, they don't pay attention to you. They don't respect you. They don't listen to your decrees and they don't worship you or the image that you've set up. Look at what verse 12 tells us. Verse 12 tells us that it's actually the king. Remember in chapter two, it was Nebuchadnezzar who put these men in the position that they're in. And yet these men are willing to have a confidence in their God independent of the position that they have been put in. Even when they came into the empire and they started off in a lowly position, they were trusting in the Lord. And with each position that they were granted, each time they were promoted, what did they do? They didn't let the place that they were in dictate their faith. They actually let their faith dictate their actions in the midst of the place that they were put. They, they, they possess a confidence in God that is independent of their position. And so when Nebuchadnezzar hears this, he's outraged. And he calls the men to them. He calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before them. And he begins to look at him. He says, hey, is it true, guys? Come on. Is it true that you're not doing what I said, that you haven't fallen down and worshiped the golden image that I've set up? He goes, I'll give you another chance. If you're ready, and when you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, all the musical instruments, Nebuchadnezzar says, I want you to fall down and I want you to worship the golden image that I have set up. But if you do not worship, you'll be immediately cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who's the God who could deliver you out of my hands? Look at what it says right there in that verse. By threat of death, Nebuchadnezzar says, look, if you don't do what I say, then I'm gonna kill you. And even under that pressure, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego put a confidence in God. Independent of what the king might do to them, they're still willing to trust their God. And so they begin to respond to him. And they look at the king and they go, hey, look, we don't have to defend ourselves. I love that line. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, if you're gonna kill us, our king, whom we serve, he's able to deliver us from your hands and from the burning, fiery furnace. But, O oh king, let it be known, if he does not deliver us, we will not bow down before you. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this conversation with the king, they look at him and they go, hey, we're gonna follow him no matter what. Our God is capable and he's able to save us. And if he chooses to do so, great. But even if he chooses not to, we won't. And what I think that displays is that these three men have a confidence in God independent of the provisions that come from God. And what I mean by that is they're they're willing to say, we'll follow Yahweh whether he saves us from this furnace or whether he saves us on the other side of this furnace. Whether we experience life now or whether we experience life after death, we are willing to put our trust in God. And that is an attitude that I wish I had. A confidence in my Savior independent of the provisions that I don't just trust God for what I get, but I trust him for who he is. And it's there that the second section of this story ends. We move into the third, which begins to dictate or describe to us the capability of the God that these men have put their confidence in. Because Nebuchadnezzar is furious. And he actually changes the expression on his face towards them. He says that the furnace is heated seven times hotter than normal. And he begins to have orders sent out that the mighty men that served Nebuchadnezzar would actually go and bind up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so that's what happens. The three men are bound, and they're tied in the clothes that they're wearing, the the cloaks and the tunics that they have on. It says their hats that they were wearing and the other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Well, because the king's order was urgent, and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I think we skip over that sometimes. Did you you catch that right there? Because the king's order was so urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, this thing is hot, all right? And we we, we can begin to see that. And and we, we probably have a difficult time understanding just how hot that furnace is because when it comes to flames, like for me, the only way that I can relate to this is with my grill. Because I am the king, to be quite honest with you, I'm the king of grease fires. It's, just, it's a spiritual gift of mine. And I know a thing or two about grease fires because I'm from Branson, Missouri. And let me let you into this. In junior high, I worked at the Silver Dollar City. And I was flipping corn on the cob for eight hours a day in 100% humidity, using the sweat off my brow to season that corn. And probably, <laughs> probably serving it to you all as you came around, right? But I remember being 14, standing there, you know, full Wranglers on, full sleeve shirt, and I'm trying to flip this corn, and it is so hot, I can't even get near it, that my boss comes and he gives me an an extender to this spatula that I'm flipping, and I'm standing 10 feet back trying to just move corn about on a grill. That's as close as I come to understanding the flames of this grill that King Nebuchadnezzar heated up. Because these men didn't just have to step back, it's actually as they followed the orders to step in that the flames killed them. It killed the men that were carrying Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into it. And then the last verse tells us that the three faithful men, they fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. The author in this story doesn't leave a lot of time for dramatic pauses. There's not a lot of like uh, cliffhangers And so immediately after we're told that these three men fall into the furnace, we go to the next verse and we're told the resolution of the story. Because it says that Nebuchadnezzar was astonished that he rose up in haste. He he declares to his counselors, he's going, wait, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And the counselors, I'm sure they're looking into the furnace a little bit and they're going, yeah, no, absolutely, king. We, 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 We put three men and Nebuchadnezzar goes, well, something is wrong. Because I see four men unbound and they're walking in the midst of the fire. They're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar, after the three men fall into the furnace, he's looking around, he goes, wait, something's wrong because I see someone else in there. There's a fourth person in there. And this is where I wanna dive in. Nebuchadnezzar says that the fourth person who's walking around there looks like a son of the gods. And that word, those words, son of the gods, are a clue for us. They tell us what's going on. They don't just tell us what this person looked like. They tell us who this person is. 
And the fancy word for what I think is going on here is a theophany, okay? A theophany is a big fancy word that means appearance of God. And we see God appear in the scriptures all the time. But even more than I think that this person is just specifically God, this fourth person is God in the furnace with him, I think we could call it a Christophany, that it's an appearance of Christ. And, and the, the issue is you go, well, wait, hang on, Christmas hasn't happened yet. All right, I, I know what's going on. The incarnation hasn't happened yet. The Son of God hasn't taken on flesh and been known as Jesus yet. So how could this be an appearance of Christ? And when I say it's a Christophany, I believe that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. This is God foreshadowing of what's to come. This is Jesus showing up before Jesus was born. And so what does that actually do for us? What's it do for us when we believe that this is Jesus? Because we see Jesus show up in the Old Testament, I think, these, Christoph these Christophanies all the time. Look at Joshua. Joshua falls down before the commander of the Lord's army, right? I believe that's Jesus before Jesus showed up. Abraham runs into an interesting character. His name's Melchizedek, right? And he begins to tithe to him and worship him. I personally believe that's Christo Christophany. I think that's Jesus before Jesus shows up. It's a foreshadowing. And the same is true here, that Jesus is in this furnace and it does something for us because it tells us something. It tells us that God is with his people, that even in their hardest situation as these three men are feeling the heat of these flames as they walk up to the furnace, God isn't at a distance saying, oh, you'll figure this out on your own. Don't worry, I'm a distant God who just wants you to be confident in me and then I'll show up if I decide to or not. No, he's actually a God who is present too. And the fact that Jesus is in the fire with them also tells us about the way that Jesus saves, that he doesn't save them from the furnace, he saves them from within the furnace, which is an unbelievable idea because it's exactly what God did in this world with death. Jesus didn't skirt around death, but he actually walked into it. And from within it, he overcame death. And isn't that what he wants to do with us? Isn't that exactly the same truth for us, that Jesus is with us? that we don't have a God who is distant, but we actually have a God who is very powerful, very capable, but unbelievably present. And just like he was willing to walk through the furnace with these three men, our God is willing to walk through the furnace of this life with us. That he doesn't leave us alone and leave us off in the distance. He doesn't expect us to figure it out on our own, but hand in hand, he walks through the turmoil of this life with us. And he doesn't just wanna just have us escape this life. But hand in hand, he walks through the hardship because he wants us to help us overcome this life. Because just as Jesus conquered death, he wants to make us more than conquerors. And so he walks through the hardest moments of life with us because he's the God who's capable of, of overcoming even those hardest moments of life. There's a fourth person in this fire and I wholeheartedly believe it's the God that we serve today. And when Nebuchadnezzar sees this, he, all the people begin to question what's going on, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, even Nebuchadnezzar. And they pull the men out and they're beginning to kind of look at what's going on. They go, wait, 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 not even your clothes are singed. Your hair doesn't smell like smoke. Nothing on you has even been touched by the flames. And this is where the story begins to end. Nebuchadnezzar gives a new decree. And he actually, at the end, and I think it's in verse 30, he goes, look, if anybody speaks ill against this, the God of these three men, then I'm gonna cut them up and I'm gonna burn their house. Because he's a crazy king, right? He's showing his true colors. It starts that way and it ends that way. There's a crazy king. There's some men who put their confidence in a God and that God actually displays his capabilities. But what do we do with that? What, what, what do we do with this story that some of us maybe have never heard, some of us have heard since we were two? Well, when it comes to narrative, when it comes to Old Testament, I think there's something that we typically like to do. And what we like to do is we try and identify the main characters, right? And so we try and identify these main characters and then we wanna group them. And in fact, Nick Rowland and I both talked about this at the beginning of Esther, saying that a lot of times we wanna use narrative, just find the, the, the characters, group them into good and bad, and then say, be like the good characters. And we gotta be careful doing that sometimes in the Old Testament because a lot of times the characters in the Old Testament, the one we're really supposed to like, look up to is, is God, not, not necessarily a character. 
But I think this is an example where if we were to take the main characters, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Nebuchadnezzar, group them, quote unquote, good and bad, it wouldn't be bad for us to strive to be like these three men. Because wouldn't it be an amazing thing if we as followers of Jesus had a faith in Jesus that was independent of our peers, the the position that we're in, the pressures that we face, and the provision that we're hoping for? And what would that look like if I could actually be someone who follows after Jesus, independent of the people that I work with, play with, or, or live with, that even if the people I work with aren't following after Christ, that I still would. Even if the people that I hang out with aren't following after Christ, that I still would. And that the people I'm around wouldn't dictate my faith, but the God that I put my faith in would actually do that. What if we were people who, independent of our position, whether it seem low or be elevated, that that we wouldn't let our position actually be the very thing that instructs our actions, but we would let our faith be what instructs our actions independent of our position. And we all know the pressures of this world mount, that things get tough. And I know when I look at the times where I've been under the most pressure, it's typically the times that I run to the least amount of faith. What if like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the hardest times, I actually trusted the most? You see, I think we wanna be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but the problem is we probably more realistically identify with Nebuchadnezzar because we too are people who are idolatrous. Just like Nebuchadnezzar in chapter two, it ends with him saying Yahweh's the true God. In chapter three, he's building an image of gold and saying worship it. We become people who so quickly turn away from the true God and king and look to anything else that we can find or get a hold of to begin to fixate our eyes on, to put our worship towards, to begin to focus on. We too, just like the king, become idolatrous. And not just idolatrous, but proud. Nebuchadnezzar throughout this story is putting on these decadent parades, calling in all the people, all the officials, playing all the music so that he could display what he had done. And I think we become people who live our life in a way to try and demonstrate who we are and all that we've done rather than displaying the God who made us. We become people who are driven by our pride to display ourselves rather than the true creator. And not only that, but we too are forgetful. And think about that for a second. Remember, Daniel chapter two. Nebuchadnezzar seems to be knowing what's going on with Yahweh. Daniel chapter three, like a few verses later, he's forgot. He's forgotten what he said. He's forgotten what the Lord did. He's forgotten who God is. And in that forgetfulness, he turns away from him. We too become people who so easily forget the way that God has provided for us, the way that he has walked with us, the way that he's been with us. And in our forgetfulness, we run to faithlessness. I, I actually think memory is a beautiful gift from God and the memories that we have of, the, of, of God working in our life and walking with us, they're actually a tool that enable us to take steps of faith in the future. But we too are forgetful and we're angry. Throughout the story of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar seems to be an angry king. And what's interesting to me is, as I was looking through it and kind of reading over it, it seems like it's fear that always leads Nebuchadnezzar into anger. And when I look at my own life, that seems to be the case too. It's in my fear that I run to anger, afraid of losing something or someone And in that anger, I begin to act out and it's an unrighteous anger that just leads to an unholy lifestyle and an unhealthy lifestyle. What if unlike Nebuchadnezzar, what if I actually brought my fears to the Lord and let it lead me into worship rather than anger? You see, we wanna be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we wanna aspire to be like them. That's a great idea, but I think the first step in being like them is actually repenting of being like him. We gotta take our idolatry, our pride, our forgetfulness, our unrighteous anger unto the Lord and then ask him to walk with us. Just like he displayed in this story that he does, that we might then take on a confidence and a faith in God that is independent of all the variables in this world. Here's the one issue. I actually don't think that these are the main characters in this story. So yeah, we can do this, but, but I actually think that the main characters in this story are Nebuchadnezzar and are Yahweh. 
I think that's what this story was written to display. I actually think Daniel chapter three is polemical writing. I think it's a polemic. And what it does is it actually contrasts these two characters. I think the writer of Daniel chapter three wrote it in such a way that we as the readers would look and go, wow, Nebuchadnezzar pales in comparison to Yahweh. And you can see that throughout the story. Nebuchadnezzar is a king. Yahweh is the only one listed as a god. And there is a big difference. Nebuchadnezzar is a king who demands that his people actually follow him. He puts out this tyrannical decree saying, you have to do what I say. And that is the complete opposite of the God who we serve, who lovingly gives us a choice and actually welcomes us, invites us to walk with him. The way that Nebuchadnezzar found compliance for his demand was by the threat of death. And again, that's the opposite of the God who we serve who doesn't threaten us to follow him with death, but actually offers us abundant life if we choose to walk with him. And not only is Nebuchadnezzar the one who's this tyrannical king demanding of his people, threatening them with death, but the, the story shows that he just builds. And I love this idea because it's so simple, but we overlook it so quick. Throughout the story, it's repeated over and over. Nebuchadnezzar set up an image. Nebuchadnezzar built an image, never created. He just put together a Lego set. And we compare that with the true God that we serve, who's actually the one who created us in his image. Nebuchadnezzar is just trying to build an image. Jesus is the one who everything was built through him and for him. And we get to be the ones who represent him. You know, there's a line that Nebuchadnezzar gives that, that's really an interesting, where he says, look, who is the one that could deliver you out of my hands? Do you remember that? It, I think it's in verse 15. He's looking at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says, look, you can bow down, but if you don't, then I'm gonna throw you into the furnace, into the furnace and who is the God who could deliver you out of my hands. He looks at him and says, I'm gonna kill you and no one can save you. Compare that to Jesus, who says, I came to give eternal life that no one would perish. And who could possibly snatch you out of my hand? Jesus isn't a tyrant king who demands that we follow him by threat of death. Jesus is the true God who gives us the choice to follow him and says, look, this world wants to take you down. Sin and evil want to grab you, but I've actually rescued you. And there is no one and nothing that could snatch you out of my hands because I'm the only God who is here. I'm the only God who's present and powerful. I'm the God who's capable. Ultimately, it's the followers of Nebuchadnezzar who are killed. And yet it is the servants of the true living God who are saved. You see, when we look at this story this way and see that it's a polemic between Nebuchadnezzar and Yahweh, actually the decision of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego makes sense. They made the wise decision. Now, I'm not saying they made the easy decision, but what they did was right because there's one God and everyone else pales in comparison to him. I think what we do with this story then is to try and be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but the way we try and be like them is to do what they did, to put our dependence on the God who delivers, to find our safety in the God of salvation, to make the wise decision, to trust the God who's trustworthy, and to place our confidence in the God who is capable. And not just capable, but present. Because remember, there is a fourth person in that fire. And let me just say for a second, if you're walking through the hardship of this life, whether it be because of a broken home, a broken heart, or situations done unto you or that you have done, we here at Fellowship, we serve a God who doesn't walk away from you. And as the trials of this life arise and as the hardship heats up, I promise that there is a God that you could place your confidence in and he is capable to walk through that hardship with you.
how I've been set free There is a grave that holds nobody Now the power lives in me There is another in the fire Standing next to me There is another in the waters Holding back the seas Should I ever power set me free there is a grave that holds nobody now the power lives in me would you stand with us as we declare our trust in him say Jesus only Jesus help us trust you
sing that out and declare it one more time together. Sing his name, Jesus. Jesus, only Jesus, help me trust you more and that is our prayer that in every season as we walk we would walk by your spirit in the way of the righteous that we would delight in the law of the Lord day and night that we would be like a tree planted by streams of water that we would bear fruit and as you promise in the Psalms all that we do it will prosper and so God we look at what true prosperity means. And that is trusting in your will and your goodness toward our lives. So may we trust that you are with us, that you are for us. And would you draw us near to you and teach us to walk by your spirit. We thank you for your word today. May it take root in our hearts. And as we leave this place, would we bear fruit for your kingdom. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for worshiping this morning with this fellowship. As always, if you'd like prayer, we have our prayer room open down here to your right down the hall. Go in peace this week.